Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Alan Cross, and this summer we thought we would do something special with the Ongoing History Podcast and give you, our fantastic audience, a bonus episode every Sunday from now through Labor Day. We're going all the way back to the spring of 2010 and a 15-part deep dive into the history of Alternative Rock. It's the History of Alt Rock series. So every Sunday, you'll get a brand new episode of this series that examines every single facet of Alt Rock from the 1950s right up to, well, pretty much today. And don't worry, because we'll have a brand new episode of the Ongoing History Podcast for you every Wednesday as well. So you're getting two podcasts every week now through Labor Day. I hope you enjoy. And thanks for supporting the Ongoing History of New Music. Today, we can choose from an infinite array of music. There are so many songs, so many artists from so many genres over so many years that none of us will ever come close to experiencing it all. But that's okay because most of us have a favorite style of music. We tend to find a sound that we like and we stick with it over all others. For all kinds of very personal reasons, this becomes our favorite brand of music. For example, if you're listening to me right now, you're probably a big fan of rock music. More specifically, you're listening to the show on this station because at least some of your preferences lie in the realm of new rock or modern rock or alt rock, indie music, alternative music, whatever you want to call it. There just is a specific aesthetic and sensibility when it comes to rock music that seems to move you in these particular directions. But what exactly is that aesthetic? How did these sensibilities and styles develop? Where did they come from? Why do we consider one band alternative? and another one to be something else entirely. And why are we so tribal when it comes to our choices in music? These are very complex questions, and the answers can only be found by examining 60 years of rock history. This is The Complete History of Alt-Rock, Chapter 1. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hi, I'm Alan Cross, and we're about to start out a project that we haven't done on this show since the late 1990s. We're going to recount the entire history of alternative music. Because actions have consequences, history is a moving target. New details come out. New interpretations take shape. What used to be cool is now cheesy, and what used to be weird is now familiar and taken for granted. What was once deemed inconsequential a few years ago is now a big deal as the effects of that event ripple forward through time, disrupting our view of what we thought happened. We often don't understand why something was important until many, many, many years after the fact. Things sometimes need to stew and to simmer before its effects are really felt. And that's why I think it's important to periodically re-examine what we know and what we think we know about our music. The result should be a greater appreciation for what we hear today and for what came before. In the beginning, all rock was alternative. When songs like this started showing up in the early 1950s, this is Jackie Brenston's Rocket 88 with Ike Turner on vocals, it was actually a little frightening. This was the devil's music. Rhythm and blues, the so-called race records of the American South, had mated with hillbilly and country music to produce this strange offspring that scared decent folks. You women have heard of jalopies, you've heard the noise they make, but let me introduce my new Rocket 88. Yes, it's straight, just one way. Everybody likes my Rocket 88. Baby, we'll ride in style, moving all along. 
teenagers. A new classification of that time between being a child and adulthood. Love this stuff. It was full of energy. It was primal. It was primitive. And because their parents and pastors hated it, it was wonderfully dangerous and therefore desirable. Rock and roll music and why I preach against it, I believe that it is a contributing factor to our juvenile delinquency of today. I know what it does to you. And I, I know uh, the evil feeling that you feel when you sing it. I know the, the, the lost position that you get into in the beat. Well, uh, if you talk to the average teenager of today and you ask them what it is about rock and roll music that they like, and they'll, the first thing they'll say is the beat, the beat, the beat. But it was much, much more than just the beat. See, rock and roll had its own language, its own secret codes. The hip kids knew that the phrase rock and roll was an old African-American slang term for sex. White kids listening to black music with its jungle drums, that just wasn't decent. At the very least, this music was way too weird for many in their uptight, let's face it, racist views. While the rest of the world was listening to songs like this... How much is that dog in the window? A young white truck driver who sounded like he was black began to change everything. You ain't nothing but a Elvis Presley was the first true rock and roll star. And if rock and roll was the alternative to the mainstream in the 1950s, we could also say that Elvis was our first alternative music star, too. Well, they said you was Thanks to a new invention called the transistor radio, rock and roll became portable. So you no longer had to listen to the big console radio in the living room where mom and dad could hear. You could take your transistor radio everywhere and listen anywhere, safely away from people who might disapprove. And thanks to the low cost of making this new thing called a seven inch single, rock music began to spread extremely quickly. But as Elvis became more of a mainstream star, there were those who were already looking to subvert things even further. Well, and you know the songs I've been flying around. I'm the only one who's seen it on the ground. First thing I seen when I saw it land, cast jumped out and they formed the band. This is Billy Lee Riley. He's a rockabilly singer who, just like Elvis, recorded for the Sun label in Memphis back in the 1950s. When he made this recording, rock and roll was only a few years old. But Billy Lee was taking this new music to extremes. Now forget about Elvis and his swinging hips. People who sat in on some of Billy Lee's recording sessions remember how he sometimes literally swung upside down from the rafters, screaming into the microphone. Now this boy was certainly different, even in the already radical new world of rock and roll. And there were others like him, like the weird and scary Little Richard. And Jerry Lee Lewis, a close relative of preacher Jimmy Swaggart. He pounded his pianos to splinters and sometimes set his pianos on fire. And this is before he married his 13-year-old cousin. It's just great. Balls of fire. In 1957, there was the darker sound of Gene Vincent looking all tough and greasy in his leather jacket. And then there was Eddie Cochran, whose songs about teenage boredom were later covered by Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols. Hello, when you 
By the early 1960s, the surf music craze had begun in Southern California. And long before the Beach Boys sang about driving to the beach in their little deuce coupe to catch a wave, there was Dick Dale. Dick played his guitar left-handed and upside down. And he managed to coax so many new sounds out of his guitar that he became a consultant for the Fender Company, testing amplifiers and portable reverb units. Now, Dick Dale never had a top 40 hit, but anyone who heard him play the guitar never forgot that sound of power. By 1963, teenagers around the world were anxious to make music of their own. Some could play their instruments, some couldn't. And really, not being able to play wasn't really that much of an issue. The important thing was just to go ahead and do it. The Kingsman and Louie Louie, they recorded their slop rock anthem for 50 bucks. The completely unintelligible lyrics were rumored to be pornographic, but not even a six-month sound analysis test by the FBI could prove that. See, no one was trying to hide anything. The singer wore these heavy braces on his teeth, and he was forced to sing up into a single overhead microphone, so no wonder he couldn't enunciate. The Kingsman launched the era of the American garage band, groups that were often rough and ragged and who got risque from time to time with their material. Take, for example, Question Mark and the Mysterians. In 1966, they released a song that was supposed to be called 69 Tears. But, fearing that the connotations of the number 69 would offend people, their record company persuaded the group to make a change. Too many teardrops for one heart to be crying. Throughout the mid-60s, bands popped up in garages all across North America. We had the Seeds, the Count Five, the Barbarians, the Standells, the Trogs. Some of these bands wore leather jackets as part of their getup, giving them a rebellious James Dean kind of look. Some observers said these jackets made them look like punks. A few of these garage bands managed to have hit singles, but most of them did not. They remained underground, popular with a certain type of music fan, the kind that liked their music rough and raw and real. See, even as rock celebrated its 10th birthday, it had began to segment and stratify. There was the acceptable mainstream stuff at the top, and the music that wasn't ready or interested in prime time. A new musical subculture was being born. And as all this was happening, Three guys who would have incalculable effects on the development of alt-rock were just starting out. Nobody knew who they were, and no one could have foreseen the influence that they'd have. We'll meet them for the first time in moments. By 1965, three guys, two Americans and a Brit, had started their music careers. They weren't doing very well, so no one paid much attention. David Jones was a young saxophone player who loved Little Richard. The first time anyone really heard about him was when he appeared on a BBC News program in November of 1964 as the founder, president, and spokesman for the International League for the Preservation of Animal Filaments. This was an organization devoted to making it acceptable for young British men to wear their hair long. 
Earlier that year, June 1964, David had released his first ever single. He called his group the King Bees, and the song was called Lie to Jane. That's David Jones and the King Bees, Liza Jane, released June 1964. In 1966, David Jones would change his name to David Bowie to avoid being confused with Davy Jones, who was the cute little English dude on the TV show The Monkees. We'll come back to Bowie later. Meanwhile, in Detroit, a guy named Jimmy Osterberg was doing his best to keep from being sent to Vietnam. One story says he faked being gay and or insane at the Army recruiter's office. Whatever he did, it worked. Jimmy was sent away, and he was able to go back to being a drummer for hire. Now, Jimmy was pretty good. He played on the occasional Motown record, but he also gigged with his own band, the Iguanas. And here's what he was doing in 1964. Jimmy Osterberg singing and playing the drums for the Iguanas. Because he played for the Iguanas, he got the nickname Iggy. And after he shaved off his eyebrows after drinking too much, someone remarked that he looked an awful lot like a local druggie called Jim Pop. And that's how James Osterberg became known as Iggy Pop. Our third guy from the early 1960s could be the most important because his work had a tremendous effect on both Iggy and David Bowie. This dude is key. Lewis Allen Reed was born in Brooklyn. He started playing in bands in the late 1950s. In between the times, his parents sent him for electroshock therapy to cure him of what they believed to be homosexual tendencies. Hey, it was the 50s. Lou's earliest band was The Shades, and they were into the doo-wop of the day. Then he moved west to Syracuse University, where he studied film, journalism, and creative writing while also working as a part-time DJ on a local radio station. By September 1964, he was back in Manhattan, where he got a job as a staff songwriter at a label called Pickwick Records. For 25 bucks a week, he was paid to churn out songs for budget albums that would be sold for a buck in department stores and furniture stores. This kind of prefabricated crap was very common back then, and Pickwick made a lot of money doing this. In November 1964, Lou recorded a song called The Ostrich. This was supposed to grab a piece of the dance crazes of the day, you know, the twist and the mashed potato and all that. And it sounded like this. The Primitives, featuring Lou Reed on vocals. That dates from November 1964, just as David Bowie was defending his long hair on British TV, and just as Iggy Pop's band was opening shows for the Shangri-Las in Detroit. A few months later, Lou and his bandmate, the Welsh-born John Cale, would be part of what is considered to be the first ever alternative rock band, the Velvet Underground. Now, the Velvets started coming together in the spring of 1965. They started recording the rehearsals that summer, and by December, the lineup was complete. There was Lou and John, guitarist Sterling Morrison, and drummer Mo Tucker. Yeah, a woman drummer. That was radical, and she played like a radical. See, instead of sitting down behind a standard kit, she played standing up with bass drums turned on their sides, and she whacked everything with mallets instead of sticks. 
Taking their name from a trashy book on S&M sex by Michael Lee, they played their first paying gig on December 11th, 1965. It was a high school in New Jersey, and they were paid 75 bucks. In the spring of 1966, they began a residency at a club called the Café Bazaar. This was in Greenwich Village. And one guy who heard about their raw and gritty approach was Andy Warhol. Yeah, the pop artist. He immediately took them into his circle, hiring them to play the freaky parties at The Factory, Warhol's New York headquarters. Warhol became the Velvet's mentor and chief patron, encouraging them to hire on a German model named Nico for visual interest. And he even produced the band's 1967 debut record. Okay, he was credited as being the producer, but he didn't really know much about making records. He was just there to inspire and encourage them. He didn't touch anything. Left to their own devices, the Velvet Underground turned out an album that was scandalous and shocking. It was noisy and angry and had themes of sex and drugs and life on the street and S&M and the awesomeness of just getting wasted. And while even the most daring hippie bands of the day were simply alluding to having sex and using drugs, Lou Reed was there actually describing it. From the Velvet Underground's debut record, which was called The Velvet Underground and Nico, that's heroin. I cannot emphasize how shocking that song was for 1967. The album was just too raw and too real to gain any kind of mainstream attention. The album reached number 199 on the top 200 chart in Billboard magazine. Then it disappeared. But for those who were looking for something other than the sugary pop that was being played on AM radio and who didn't like the acid wash of psychedelic rock, the Velvet Underground represented something new and important. No one really knew what it all meant, but there was something to what they were doing. Not sure what it was, but it was there. David Bowie got it. He was a fan of a song called Scoring Smack called Waiting for the Man as early as a few months after the record came out. Iggy Pop got it. He loved that first Velvet's record. He saw them play live in April of 1967. And by that summer, the Iguanas were gone, and Iggy was in a new band called the Psychedelic Stooges. And they played their first show at a private party that Halloween. It wasn't very good. So bad that their manager quit and went back to his job as a school teacher. The first proper public performance came in March of 1968. The opening act for this show was a food processor. Somebody set up a blender filled with a little bit of water and let it roar through the PA for about 15 minutes. When the Stooges finally came on, Iggy was wearing a nightshirt and golf shoes and white mime makeup and a big Afro wig made out of tinfoil. Drummer Scott Ashton kept time by banging on a couple of 50-gallon oil drums with hammers instead of drumsticks. Didn't go that well. But that didn't stop the Stooges. Stories of Iggy's extreme stage antics began to circulate. The stage diving, the self-mutilation, the glitter dust, the broken glass, the times Iggy smeared peanut butter or raw meat all over his bruised and bleeding body. This wasn't anything mainstream bands like the Beatles or the Stones were doing. And the hippie groups certainly weren't into this kind of thing either. This was crazy. The cops who continually busted Iggy for indecent exposure had never seen anything like it, and they didn't know what to do with him. Now, forgive the poor quality of this recording, but you have to hear what the Stooges sounded like live. 
Here they are doing the title track of their 1973 album, Raw Power. Yeah, that's Iggy Pop and the Stooges performing in front of a very violent and angry biker gang in 1973. If you listen to the rest of that tape, you can actually hear the bottles smashing on the stage. Another Detroit area group that made waves in the mid and late 60s was the MC5. They were loud, they were profane, and they were highly political in a left-wing, super-radical kind of way. Somehow, they were signed to a big record deal in 1968. This was at around the same time as they appeared at the ill-fated Democratic National Convention in Chicago as guests of the White Panther Party. They were able to release exactly one album under their new deal. Then they were dropped after they wrote a vulgar letter on company letterhead and delivered it to record stores that refused to stock their album. But of course, stunts like that only enhanced their street cred. From 1968, this is the MC5 from Kick Out the Jams. The MC5, whose debut record was a live album. Imagine doing that today. By the end of the 1960s, there was a growing number of music fans who were bored with conventional rock and pop. They reveled in being different and liking different things. And the more disagreeable their tastes were to the mainstream and to hippie culture, the better. As extreme as Iggy and the Stooges were, as raw as the Velvets were, and as politically radical the MC5 might have been, Nothing was quite as weird as what you're going to hear next. Hold on. As the 1960s came to a close, a growing number of free-thinking people began to realize that maybe the mainstream rock scene wasn't for them. They wanted something different, something challenging. And in the fall of 1969, their prayers were answered. That October, a California sculptor-turned-musician named Captain Beefheart released an album that was so strange that it immediately became an underground classic. Most who heard this album, which is called Trout Mask Replica, found it to be absolutely, completely, and undeniably unlistenable. But many people, like the future Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols, bought it and played it because it was unlistenable. This record cleared the room at any party, and even today it's tough to listen, but the 28 songs on this single album simply opened the eyes of a few to new possibilities. Now, naturally, I need to play something for you. There is nothing wrong with your equipment. There's nothing wrong with my equipment. This is supposed to sound like this. From Trout Mask Replica, this is Captain Beefheart and Frownland. My smile is stuck. I cannot go back to your Frownland. My spirit's made up of the ocean and the sky and the sun in the moon in all my... You see what I mean? Captain Beefheart from Trout Mask Replica, his 1969 album that set an interesting standard in uh, uh, something. And again, it's important because a lot of people who would later go on to do cool things bought that album and absorbed it. Hey, you know who we haven't talked about for a while? David Bowie. What was he up to while Captain Beefheart, the MC5, and the Stooges and the Velvet Underground were making records? 
Well, he was trying to find himself. He was trying to come up with an image and a style and a sound that would work for him, and he wasn't doing very well. Take this attempt at uh, something from 1967. Released on April 14th, 1967. That's David Bowie with The Laughing Gnome. That was a desperate attempt to land a song on the charts, but it didn't work. Neither did dancing or working as a mime. Yeah, Bowie thought that there was a career in being a mime. A few months after The Laughing Gnome was released, Bowie found work writing music for a few BBC TV shows. At night, he appeared in a coffeehouse trio known as Feathers. And when he needed extra cash, he worked at a company called Legastat Document Copiers. His job was to copy legal papers for a variety of law firms. But the thing that saved Bowie from a life of photocopying and mime abuse was the American Space Program. And that's where we'll start Chapter 2. Now, you see what I mean about the roots of what we now call alt-rock or modern rock or alternative music going back further than most people realize? And we're not really even out of the 60s yet. On Chapter 2 of The Complete History of Alt-Rock, we'll find out how the Apollo Space Program saved David Bowie, thereby setting him up to be one of the most important artists of the 70s. And we'll spend some time in New York trying to figure out how Bowie, Iggy Pop, and the Velvet Underground all collided in a very important way. And then the guys from Queens who dressed in spandex and wore makeup like girls. Very important. That's coming next time on The Complete History of Alt-Rock. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 